Welcome to Eurovision Song Context. This is a podcast that tries to get to the bottom of what makes a Eurovision submission successful. It's a tour of culture, identity, and the ins and outs of ESC. In every episode, I chat with a special guest, and we eventually talk about two or three classic submissions we really loved or really didn't. I'm Bradley, and today I'm joined by Elka Krajewska. She's an artist, poet, and activist. We'll talk about her current life in Warsaw and her previous life in New York, where she notably ran the Salvage Art Institute. The Institute famously deals with what remains of fine art masterpieces that have been seriously damaged, which in insurance circles is called salvage. We'll talk about the Rodin and Calder sculptures semi-destroyed in the attacks on 9-11 and the fragments of a very famous balloon dog sculpture. Elka's working in Warsaw now, and we'll talk about Eastern Europe and current affairs, about the human experience, art, and impermanence. We'll then chat about some iconic submissions from 2020, 2016, and 2009, including Goa, Jamala, and Stefan and 3G. I always encourage you to go to the show page at eurovisionsongcontext.fireside.fm and watch the submissions before we talk about them. One last note. This episode includes three swear words that I have not edited. Hide your children. Welcome, Elka. Hi, Bradley. Excellent. So, um, can you pronounce your name for me, please? Elka Krajewska. Excellent. And where are you? Where are you right now in the world? Right now, I'm in Warsaw, in the apartment where I grew up in, in the middle of the city. Oh, amazing. Uh, it's quite amazing. I came back here this July. My mom died last summer, and I think that has been the trigger of a lot of changes in my life. Also, kind of the value system got adjusted about what's really important in life, and also my the economy in America just became too absurd for me to be able to continue to do my work and struggle to survive with basics. So um, my condolences. You, Thank you. Um, so you've lost your mother and at the same time you've come to your home country, you've been welcomed into the, the arms of, I assume, a, a second mother, which is your, your hometown and the home that you grew up in. Does that sound yeah. right? Well. It is, and it's not a return for me. I think about it as establishing a kind of um, sustainable base for my life from where I can work and from where I can go to New York and kind of function as uh, whoever I want to be at the time. Uh, and I've always been coming back to Warsaw. Uh, I've done a lot of projects here since, you know, 2001 at least. And uh, I've always kept um, alliances and relationship with the galleries that I work here, with friends. So in some way, I changed my base, but I don't really feel like this is a return. There's no place to return to. You know, it's like you keep moving and things have changed so much in both worlds that you just, I feel like, okay, now I have this place which affords me 
some sanity because my, you know, rent here, I mean, I actually, my mom owned the apartment. So the monthly payments that I have to make are just totally minimal to compare to what I had to do in New York City. Yeah, I believe, and and I believe it. As an immigrant in America and as an immigrant in New York, I really wanted always to live in Manhattan. For me, it was like <laughs> super crucial. I could not do like, I mean, I've lived in every borough. I lived in Staten Island even during my stay in New York. But I think uh, I'm also an activist and I wanted to be able to be on the call wherever we need to meet, like within half an hour, bike there and be there. And it's just something that I wouldn't be able to do always relying on public transportation and kind of. So and that living that life in East Village just became absurd. You know, if my rent started to be like three over $3,000 a month and yeah, like yeah. the amount of money that I would have to make just to cover the basic bills, I would have to become a different person. And I'm away, you know, running away from corporate lifestyle. So to do that kind of money, I would have to become a corporate worker. And I just can't afford that. My sanity cannot afford that. So yeah. I made the big switch. Yeah. You. How long were you in New York? 34 years. 34 years. So it's so, a lifetime. So tell us the year that you moved, just for context, to New York. 1989, just 1989. before the wall came down in Germany. My generation never believed that the kind of thawing and the opening of borders is going to last. So a lot of my teachers and a lot of my friends left. I was going to go to the uh, UK. I was going to go to London and start to get maybe study there. But we had a, there was a quota for Polish young students at the time, and I didn't get a visa, so I went to America. Okay. And so everything was kind of just making things as I went, you know, through public schools in New York. I went to City College. Mm. CUNY. You yeah, know, I've heard CUNY is amazing. It's an amazing school. And it was, I just, at the time, my hair was really dark, and I always tan really dark, so I could be Hispanic very easily. <laughs> and I felt at home. I was completely embraced uh, by the community there. And also coming from Poland in 89, I was like this, wow, what's going on? You know, we had all this, we had martial law that just ended, all this stuff that went uh, about the change of the government and the kind of fall of the, you know, Iron Curtain. Everybody wanted to know what's going on. So I was kind of like a cultural celebrity, not as an individual, but as a representative of the East coming suddenly to academia and to a school that was, you know, used to be free. And it was this kind of, they called it the working class Harvard. Yeah. It was fantastic. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. I had incredible teachers. I had incredible peers. And um, they took a lot of credits from I, my schooling in Warsaw. So I only had to do two and a half years undergrad. And then I got oh, a grant yeah. for grad school. But it was, it was really, everything was just like a dance. You know, it was just one step at a time. And I think that's how I live, actually. When I can't think very far. <laughs> I really want to f always focus on the immediate and... Uh, my mom's uh, illness, she was uh, ill with Alzheimer's and uh, her death. This was a long process and I was very much involved in it, but it also taught me how to live, you know, that you just, you cannot be fearful about what's going to happen in a month. You just have to deal with things that you have on the table and do them as best as you can. And so at least you can sleep at night and have some energy for the next day. 
So her dying and caring for her and general topic of care is hugely important for me. And that's also influenced, you know, the decisions of what I want to do with the rest of my life, being 55 and being, you know, having such a chunk of my life in the wonderful New York City that I loved and I still love. I just wished it was affordable for artists and I wished it was affordable for young people that are coming. I, I don't know how people make money, frankly. I don't anymore. Yeah, yeah I cannot conceptualize it. I do, I do uh, vaguely know what you mean. Well, not the same situation, but we definitely left Britain for financial reasons, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. We, mm -hmm. yeah, I just couldn't see a way that we were going to be able to make headway. Um, so, mm -hmm. yeah. You know, the New York in, in the 80s, that also sounds a little bit dangerous. Those were the scary years in New York. It was. <laughs> I mean, people, when I would come to Tompkins Square, you know, in his village, it was just, this was like the boundary of where you can go. They said, okay, Avenue A is okay, but don't even try going to Avenue B. And <laughs> Tompkins Square Park is right in between. And you had both this sort of, legacy of um, beat, you know, poetry and all that kind of stuff of Jack Kerouac and Ginsburg and all these people milling around in your head at that particular location. But it was, you know, junkies and dirty. And uh, for a young girl like me, it was definitely uh, trying. <laughs> but I was also extremely curious and I had amazing friends. There was Danny, who I still cannot find. Uh, Danny was my kind of a guide in East Village. He lived in a hotel, in a small apartment on St. Mark's. And he took me to every club. You know, there was Brownies on Avenue B, there, which doesn't exist anymore. And there was all these clubs that are gone. I mean, places that you really could hear great music for nothing and uh, hang out. And all of it, mo most of it is gone. Most of it is gone. Most of it is just... You know, Continental, they're just taking apart the whole corner of Bowery yeah, and St. Mark's and, and Pyramid and all these clubs. It's just, uh, it's a different audience now. And I think the most amazing thing that's happening is our small parties far out in Ridgewood where I go to dance and there's amazing communities out there, but very little things remain in Manhattan. And people that can live in Manhattan, you know, they are busy. <laughs> I discovered you because we went to New York with my family for the first time um, two months ago, two or three months oh. ago. And uh, oh. don't ask me why I'd never been to New York. I think I, I love Chicago. It's a smaller city. Um, I'm from Colorado and I, I, I don't know, I've met a fair number of New Yorkers. And I think I have that thing that people have about big cities where big city people think that the world revolves around them and that, you know. That right, it's, right. You know, Parisians think that Paris is the center of the world and Romans think that Rome is the center of the world. And it's the same for New York it's for me. Also, people in a small, small town, you know, somewhere out there, we don't even can't even Google. They think that's the center of the universe. So I think that's just a common thing. Do you? Yeah. I mean, I, I had a geography teacher that used to say, you know, where you are in the world because the, you know, wherever you are is at the center of the map. Right. There's no reason that America should be at a center of a map. It's a very strange way to divide. You know, you split up all kinds of things when you put America at the center. So, yeah, maybe you're right. Um, but, yeah, I was um, incredibly prejudiced. And, um, it, and, you know, it turned out great. We had a great time, loved it. Um, 
yeah, it, it exceeded our expectations, which is a bit of a snobby thing to say about a city like New York. I guess, how would it not? We went to the September 11th memorial, which is, of course, something that I remember and my six-year-old son doesn't. My husband's British, so he, you know, it was like a thing to tick off a list, wasn't it? And I was not quite so prepared. I don't want to say for how moving it would be. Uh, I I guess I just haven't opened up that memory sort of since it happened. It was was kind of like... um, You know, they say when you want to evoke childhood memories, you should go to your old house and smell the windowsill. (laughs) Because like this is this is where you were at that age. Right. And then you you go. This is cool. I I want to remember that. I I, I guess that's what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely go into the other room and have a good smell. But it's it is true. It's like, you know, because you you just there's something about the smell and everything that brings everything back. Or there's just something about being in the in this place that, um, brought things back. And of course, you know, my son is six and I did wonder whether it was a really prudent decision, but how many times are we going to New York? So we went. And um, I think, you know, when I was a kid, my parents probably uh, dragged me past the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. And my dad Mm -hmm. is a vet. And you just wonder what the perfect age is. And I kind of got there and thought, oh, right, we're going to see videos of this thing and I'm going to have to explain it. And Fine, fair enough. I mean, there's certainly equally horrendous things going on in the world today. So the point is, I did lots and lots of Googling and I discovered uh, what may or may not be an urban legend that far up in the World Trade Center, there were a load of Rodins and that they were destroyed, um, you know, up on the hundredth floor somewhere. Mm-hmm. But that apart from the catastrophic loss of life um, and other tragedies that happened, Uh, someone started pulling these Rodin feet, you know, feet of statues out of the wreckage and that you somehow rescued them and gave a second life to to art that um, lost its value. Mm -hmm. Does Mm -hmm. that sound right? How much of that is urban legend? How much of it isn't? Total urban legend. But it's, it's, it's what's amazing about me. It's all like that. Everything is like that. I think we are wired to create stories and legends and put people, some people on the top to glorify this, name this, to make it just, that's how we're wired. And I'm not surprised. And in a way, part of uh, taking apart what we do at SAI is also taking, you know, questioning all that stuff. So it's true that uh, my relationship to the, to you know, even learning about all this stuff like total loss art has something to do with uh, 9-11, but it's a sliver. Uh, and it does not have to do with Rodin, it has to do with the Calder. Uh, it, it's a, a you know, contemporary sculpture that was standing in front of 9-11, uh, in front of the World Trade Center. Sorry, it's a globe. And is this the globe or the other one? No, no, no. The globe is something. <laughs> uh, but um, it was sort of like a red, uh, mobile looking big sculpture. Calder is known for his mobile pieces and it's kind of red steel, very beautifully red painted pieces. And someone from, uh, so the piece was destroyed and because it was metal, there were parts of it were mixed in with the 9-11 rubble. And there was a woman, it wasn't me, who was, I think, part of the Calder uh, Foundation, but maybe not even related to it. I don't want to create another myth. And she was trying to 
get together as many pieces of that sculpture as possible to justify its remaking. You need at least like 30%, you know, but unfortunately she couldn't access it because the sculpture, you know, metal was mixed it with metal and human remains and all of it was taken to Staten Island, you know, through the barges. So she couldn't access, but the story remained. I learned about SAI through looking at the barges. I was sitting on a terrace at the time I was living in Staten Island and I was watching the river and I was thinking about how the landscape of the river has changed, of the Hudson has changed. And I was a sailor just before 9-11 and then 9-11 kind of stopped my sailing experience for a while. And I met this woman, she came for, for she was a neighbor, she came for a cup of tea and we had a coffee and she turned out to be a PR person for AXA Art which was the biggest global art insurance company. And we started to talk about what, you know, what happened in 9-11 and what about these barges and what about all this stuff. Um, and you're talking about the Koenig, Fritz Koenig sphere that was also standing in front of the World Trade Center that remained. And it's actually still a kind of a monument which is, shows the impact of the disaster, mm -hmm. and this was a gift of the Axav Insurance. They've they've owned it. The insurance company owned it uh, after a, you know the damage, and they gave it back to the city, I think, or back to the memorial fund as a kind of thing. So this is a relationship between the Axa Insurance Company and 9/11. Uh, but through all this web of learning about these things that remained or not remained, I learned about the whole total loss framework. Okay. And I learned about the pieces and I learned about that colder and that's that hearing about that colder was one of the first thing I started to google. I wanted to know how the piece looked like, what is it that they've recovered, would somebody ever have rights to remake the piece, you know, all these things were interesting me. But as I was talking to this woman and she was starting to describe to me the fact that once the artwork is totaled, meaning it's been declared of zero value. It, at least in America, it goes into the hands of the insurance company and the insurance company becomes a legal owner with all the transfer, not only of title, but the copyright and the piece itself. And she told me that there have things like that in their storages. And I was just stunned. And I said, what is this? And she said, well, we call it salvage. That's the legal name of that kind of uh, territory where the damage is so severe uh, that either it can never be, you know, the work can never be repaired or if it's too expensive to repair it. And I thought, oh my God, I want to know what's in that storage. I want to know, I didn't know whether I'm asking as an artist, I didn't know whether I'm asking as an, just an individual, individual who is curious, I wasn't sure. But within the 15 minutes of our conversation, I decided I want to start a salvage art, what I called at the time museum. And very soon after, and basically that day with her, I wrote it down and I said, I want to create this place I want to place it in Staten Island, kind of at this receiving trash end. At the time, we had a huge, you know, um, uh, I mean, Staten Island was this receptacle of New York City garbage. We, there used to be a huge hill of just garbage behind the fence, which has now become a park. But at that time, it wasn't yet. And so I um, 
started the Salvador Museum, this idea, the day I spoke with this woman. And then a month later, just talking to people about it, I realized I don't want it to be a museum because I don't want it to be like sitting on top of a collection and creating another set of like storage. I wanted it to be an institute that will be just sort of like a framework through which these things will flow through. So on one hand, we can own them and look at them, but we can also discuss things that we don't necessarily own, but we learn from and kind of create a laboratory of thinking about what are those things? How do we look at them? Uh, are there artworks or not? What part of it is art, what part isn't? And just the way of kind of training your eye and your sensibility to being able to look at uh, something that have had a status of an artwork but for one reason or another doesn't have it anymore. Yeah. So that's the beginning of the, and that's the relationship to 9-11, but it had nothing to do, we didn't, I didn't personally go into, although I was there at nine, you know, during 9-11 in New York, I was actually living on Church Street and you know, right below Canal, so I actually saw the second tower fall and I was in the neighborhood of, you know, hardcore stuff that was going on for months. Yeah. So I was definitely as a human impacted by that whole change of culture. You know, what used to be a marina became like this place for barges to transport all this stuff from 9-11. So our life was completely changed from, you know, that day. I am but, really interested, like really, really interested um, in the terminology that comes up here. So you've used the word salvage. Salvage to mm -hmm. me, if we were talking about car, that was a write-off or totaled, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, of course it would go to salvage and then you would take what was usable off of it. You know, I might take mm -hmm. the wheels or like, you know, whatever mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. um, but in this case, it doesn't seem that it is salvage. It's salvage in the sense that you've saved it, but there's what not a lot you can do with it well that's what they call it and i decided i don't want to invent things i'm really interested in things that already exist in the world i don't need to have a feeling so i thought okay they call it salvage you know let's look at that so salvage art you know salvage art institute seems like a very kind of clear and precise way in which i would narrow our interest to things uh, that are that have gone through this insurance process, that have gone through the official declaration of loss, through the insurance policies and all that, not to include every artwork that's damaged. Because of of course, once people started to hear about SAI, they were like, "Oh, I have this, you know, from my grandmother, and it fell off the thing. Can we send it to you?" <laughs> or somebody who just doesn't want to store stuff, and they say, "Oh, we had all this stuff damaged in the fire. Can we send it to you?" And I'm like, "Okay, was it insured?" That was my, always my first question. If it was insured and if it was declared as total loss, we're gonna take it and we'll find a way to do it. But it's not so simple. Very often galleries will not declare something as a total loss because it's gonna change their premium. So they're gonna try to you know, recover something or just not declare it at all and kind of put it aside. And I've had galleries coming to me with names, you know, artworks of people that are famous and big galleries and they are saying like, well, could we have this at your, you know, inventory and we can start, you know, discussion about it. And I said, have you declared a total loss? And they said, no. I said, I can't take it. So that kind of declaration of total loss for me is a principal thing to get into our inventory because it's a, it's a path. It's an official language, an official process, which extremely interests me. 
this is the bio of you that I have in front of me. Yeah. It says okay. Elka it's is old, a, I guess. <laughs> well, Elka is a Polish. Every month it's old with me. <laughs> I get that feeling. I get that feeling. You are yeah. a, uh, yeah, um, you're a force. So Elka is a Polish artist and experimental filmmaker who works through digital media. She moved to New York in 1989 after studying linguistics and film history in Warsaw University to study photography, literature, sculpture, and painting. Particularly impressed by the works of Claude Cahoon, Hans Richter, Ken Jacobs, and or Richard Foreman, uh, Elka builds her work on a multimedia basis. It talks about your short films, uh, drawings, paper mm -hmm. props, video recording still images, characterized by a speedy visual rhythm and extreme brevity. Uh, mm -hmm. Your films have been selected and shown in the Pol Polish abstract film and a load of other places. I won't go through it. I understand you're a poet now. Yes. So this, what you just read is probably pre-2007, because in 2007, I, I made my last film. It was a first ever IMAX movie made by an artist. It was an app that was made and projected on an IMAX, actually an Omnimax dome screen. It was only 90 seconds long and it really kind of financially, it ruined me, but I did something I wanted to do and then I stopped. So this bio that you just read is just before that, because I think they were preparing, they were, was it from Polish Institute or something? Yeah, that sounds right. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they prepared, the, the console came to the screening, like Polish Institute came to the screening. It was in Syracuse in the Museum of Natural History, where they have a dome. The one in New Jersey at the time was the Liberty uh, Land, I forgot what it's called, but the, the New Jersey Omnimax was at the time in renovation, I think. So when I did that film, it was the biggest achievement from just artistically, for me technically, and a lot of things happened at the same time, and people were risking their live, uh, livelihoods and jobs uh, because IMAX Corporation pulled out like a month before my performance of this film, which is another story. But I've always, you know, I would always take on big corporations. <laughs> and I did, the performance did happen, but we really, we were afraid that people are gonna pull our plug during the performance because the IMAX did not officially approve what I was doing. So that bio was written before that time. Since then, I was focused on uh, performance. For a while, I was doing live performances because I really wanted to shed all this material weight. Then 2009 happened, which is uh, when I discovered uh, the material that became a salvage art institute. And then from 2009, I was sort of keeping my um, intimate, kind of my studio work more intimate. I yeah. started to paint a lot. I started to write. I would show in kind of cooperative uh, artist-run exhibitions like Soloway in Brooklyn or bring stuff here to Warsaw or in the Calder, that kind of program of the Calder Foundation, which was a performance program. And I really was focusing more on ephemeral and kind of light, lighter production and then was uh, publicly fronting myself as the Salvage Art Institute president and founder because I found it simply more fun and more interesting. When you go to a big gala dinner for like with a museum or whatever, when you, I used to be invited to those things. I not anymore, but <laughs> I people would ask you like, so what do you do? When you say you're sitting at the big table with people, when you say you're an artist, 
it's usually like, oh, so what kind of art do you do? Are you a painter or are you a sculptor? After 10 minutes, even if they are in love with what you do, the conversation kind of peters out because unless you have a studio visit or unless you really die, you can't really keep talking about yourself or your work. When I started to say I'm the president of Salvage Art Institute and saying what it is, everybody from the table would turn and they job. When I told them what it's about and what I have in my hand, the conversation would just start and it would keep going and people would want to, you know, so it's kind of, it was more fun in the public eye to be this president and founder of this weird thing because the art world is so hungry for like knowing all this scoop on something that is blah, blah. And, you know, and it's just a fun, funnier game to play. When you're an artist, you're depending on so much and you really want to not depend on so much. So I wanted to minimize all my dependencies and I just wanted to make stuff in my studio what I wanted to make and show it among people I trust. And just, I kept going with this AI as just, that's my main thing. And that's what I was doing for a long time until I just thought, we had a show in 2018-19 in Mexico in the, uh, Zapopan Museum Maz, which was terrific. It was done with amazing crew, and it was they gave us the whole museum. So we brought everything we got. Sorry, when you say time. everything, can you tell me what everything? Well, uh, so it's an inventory around 50 objects from Salvador Institute that were donated in 2012 to the Institute through an official donation, uh, which they, it's called Deed of Gift that was signed by, uh, at the time, president of AXA Art Insurance Company, the biggest global art insurance company at the time, and myself, the Salvador Art president, and we, you know, they donated these works, and we, which is a very strange document, but Salvador Institute, based on this document, is allowed to do anything we want with it. We can burn it, we can sell it, we can do whatever, it, but... I took the responsibility for what happens after. If somebody sues me or if somebody doesn't like it, AXA would clear their hands off this whole inventory and I assumed the responsibility. And uh, we, did, we did that deal in 2012. And since then we were either exhibiting those things in public, the items, the objects, usually it's they span from works on paper, paintings, sculptures, you know, sometimes they're ephemeral documents including the object itself and the paperwork of each tra uh, transformation, you know, so each um, claim process and claim process paperwork, you know, email exchange and all that stuff. So through that process from, let's say, from 2009 when I started the Institute to 2012, it's three years of basically labor of men trying to get access to that inventory and trying to see it, to be able to look at it and not only look at it, to maybe take it. It took three years and to, from the conception of the Institute till the donation. And from 2012 to 19, we were exhibiting it or creating different programs, symposia, you know, we traveled in Europe, we were in France, we were, you know, in Warsaw even in 2016, but, uh, there was usually a selection. It would be like 20 objects. It would be like 10 objects. Sometimes it would be six objects. Sometimes I even went with one piece to France. You know, we did, a, I had a Giacometti. Oh, poof, I'm not supposed to say the names. Ah, oh, okay, fine. Uh, um, uh, no, I'm, I'm, no it's, I'm okay. We can say it. It's just my policy. That's not how I start with. 
all our inventory has been recaptioned and renamed. So it's first, it's the number, and then, then it's the material that are involved and blah, blah, blah. Only at the end, which is not a secret, is the artist name and the title. But it's not how I introduce the piece. So I don't say blah, blah, blah. I say SAI 25, right? Because we want to avoid this kind of moment of like, Oh my God, you know, I, I'm going to say Kunz right now because at the time, Kunz was always the, in every article they want, even if we talked about 10,000 different things, they wanted the Kunz picture on the cover. And like Financial Times article that came out, I don't know, 2013, 14, that had the Kunz on the cover. The, you know, the art forum. We had a lot of public coverage, but everybody wanted that piece. And I thought, I'm just so sick of it because <laughs> it's obscure. I'm, it obscures the real conversation. Sorry, you mean the, trigger, the, the you Coons know? balloon dog? There's a the a, for, a former yeah, a former balloon dog, a former balloon dog. For us, it's I think SAI 15 with all the you know, aluminum, blah 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 blah. The size, the date of damage, the date of claim, blah blah blah. And then at the end, it says red balloon dog edition. I don't know which number. We have 12 out of 150. I don't know. But uh, so I'm. I only uh, I try to avoid the name of the artist, not because I'm not allowed legally. Yeah, I don't care, but because I don't want to. When you say, "So what do you have?" I I it just I don't want to respond to that question with giving you a bunch of names because that's the culture that I'm avoiding. I'm avoiding this, you know, glorification of individuals, glorifications of like creating all these hierarchies. I'm so sick of this hierarchical world. It's whole uh, patriarchal system that just fucked us over since the beginning. And I'm just doing everything in my life to what I call matria, which is, you know, it's the opposite of patria. You do matriarchal way of doing it. It's not just because it's done by women. It has nothing to do with it. It's just a different system of working, different system of communication based on collaboration, based on things, you know, reassessing your needs, going through it. It's a completely different way of doing it. So based on that, I don't want to create and just respond to what the art world or sensation wants to know, like, do you have this or do you have this or do you have that? Do you, know? you know, it's like, that's not, that's not how we work. We do have access to some amazing names and some amazing pieces for people that feel like, oh, I want to see and touch, blah, blah, blah. We can always provide that. And uh, this is easy to be done. And we've had people going through a really kind of physical catharsis, being able to touch something and, you know. There is, okay, so the, the, art, the Selfage Art Institute has an Instagram page. If you, I'll link it in the show notes. Um, I've it's seen no longer art. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, yeah, fine. Mm-hmm. You do have uh, there's some, um, you know, kind of online speeches that you've given or at at, at congresses mm-hmm. or whatnot that mm-hmm. I'll also link to. For our purposes, um, you know, of course, the the coon's dog is magical because I saw you giving a speech about how it emits glitter, right? And for a Eurovision fan, and how glitter bonds people, and I'd never fully thought about how glitter bonds <laughs> yes. people. Um, I'm interested, I think when I read about your work, the thing that really struck me, uh, was the concept of naming number one and the concept of, uh, ephemerality. So naming, 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 yeah. Naming. 
Like, um, so this idea that uh, this this dog uh, is no longer a dog and it's no longer, the artist is no longer the artist, right? It it doesn't... No, the, the artist is, is still an artist. I mean, I'm not... Yeah, but is it, but, but is the... Is the is, is who he is. Right, okay, but, you know, I don't know. Like, is... He's a good artist. Is my is my nineteen is my nineteen sixty you know Ford that was glossy and shiny this morning that I then accidentally yeah. total in some horrendous accident. I mean, is it yeah. is it the same automobile? You know, probably not. I, I mean, I I don't know. Like, yeah. I mean, are the you pieces? Know, the, thing is, the thing is, if you love that automobile and this was your first ride that your parents took you on. There are people that are going to take this, these pieces and put them back together. And they will take and ride this Trabant, you know, over the whole Europe and forego having a Mercedes because for them it has a particular meaning. The funny thing is we are more interesting as humans than we think. And when we let go of all these kind of preconceptions, we discover that we can actually relate to things through who we are, through our own experience, that we can judge what we like or we are not based on our own experience. We don't have to have a fucking influencer telling me what I should be liking. I can get that from exchange with my neighbor, from the way the cat is you know, purring at me, what I just ate that I made from the recipe that I just didn't even know I knew because somehow I watched my grandma make something and now I can make it. And I'm like, wow, I really love it. And this is much better than any kind of five star, whatever. You know, the thing is that what we've got sucked into through all these value systems and through all this corporate way of understanding us is we let go huge power of what we actually have already. Like, I don't have a TV. Part of the, my problem with Eurovision is that like, I didn't watch it for so many years because I don't have a TV. And that was usually like a gathering place for, you know, the family to get together, watch Eurovision together. It was like watching Olympics. It was like watching your favorite sky, you know, uh, ice skater and or the war or but I whatever. Think, I think, okay, so when I think of fine art, I think of something that is meant to be permanent, right? It's like, it's like, it's definitely venerated. It's permanent. It's like, it's going to exist forever. We're just going to be looking at the Mona Lisa just, just for generations and generations. And it's, in it's, you know, lovely little air conditioned spot, wherever it is. I think, I think about Eurovision and maybe this is um, not giving enough credit to Eurovision she said on a Eurovision podcast. But um, <laughs> I think about Eurovision as being like really ephemeral. Like the art is not meant art. Uh, you know, some of it is, some of it isn't, but yeah. it's, it's not meant to yeah. last. You know, it's just like, not only maybe do you not participate, you know, some of us just remember the song in the country. We don't even remember who the artist was. And it's just like disposable, a lot of it, isn't it? I mean, these songs come in, they come into our lives for like, you know, however long you are a fan, you know, some of us watch longer than others, but if you're just watching on the night of the grand final, I mean, that piece of music, it isn't permanent. It's completely disposable. I don't know. So I think about but, you on the opposite but end. It's, but it's a question of also cultural take, you know, it's like the insistence on permanence is very capital driven. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. But it's driven by it's driven by the fact that at least let's keep it at the value. So when we want to sell it, we can get the same value back. 
impermanence, you know, when you think about Buddhism, when you think about Japanese, you know, culture in Japan and how when things were, uh, let's say, um, you know, artworks that are outdoor sculptures, let's say outdoor sculptures that are Noguchi, for example, museum. Have you ever been to Noguchi Museum in Queens in New York? Noguchi is, you know, there's sculptures that are outdoor sculptures that in pub in private hands collections in America, they are going to be brushed with toothbrush to make sure that they are perfect and that they are always the same. Noguchi sculptures in Japan overgrow with moss. They're embraced by nature, that they are, you know, they kind of incorporate their life, their lifespan. They change with time, as ruins do, as things that fall apart do. Because maintenance and things don't, never are permanent. They're only permanent if we maintain them. And as we maintain them, we change them. And most of the things that you know as being unchanged or the Mona Lisa or this, very often what you're looking uh, at are actually exhibition copies and the real things are in the vaults. Very often you're building an image of a complete artifact. Like somebody actually makes you believe that you're looking at the real thing for your own protection. The real thing is, you know, in the basement, five floors down. And you're looking at the some of, of the kind of mass global idea of what this painting is like. And then you have a whole history of conservation and how people covered. And when you look go through certain museums, I mean Prado is really kind of amazing in Madrid because there's a lot of stuff there that kind of looks old. And but a lot of things in America, you look at the varnishes and all these things are shiny, and then you realize oh my God, like all these things are actually not as the artist painted them. They're covered with this gloss it's, and it just has nothing to do with the color that it used to be or have or, you know, you look at medieval paintings and all these green heads that, you know, oxidized, the paint oxidized and they never looked like pink flesh that they used to look in the original. Greek sculptures, we were, they were painted before. We know them as like white marble. You know, all of that, the kind of question of what's permanent and our insistence on it is really, you know, it's like trying to make your poor mother who is sick still be in the same sick state. You know, she's going to die. Like, you have to just be there with her and you just have to nourish her and maintain this bond with, you know, but any kind of maintenance. You know it now when you go back to an apartment that you haven't been for a while and you realize that the things don't even have, they have a different sound when you haven't touched them in a long time. They, you know, the way you walk on the floor after nobody has walked there for a while, it behaves differently. It's a different floor. When you care for things, you care for your books, objects you want, and you regularly, you know, touch them, move them around, they have a life with you and they live with you and they change their positions but they live with you what's important is this kind of not permanence but this kind of aliveness of the bond that you have with people with things with whatever the kind of state of the thing itself as permanent doesn't exist it just doesn't exist it's it's kind of exists for you as an idea and it's maybe kept for a certain amount of years but it's never going to be ever perfect and it's always liable to some next fragility of you know system of humidity is going down in a museum sudden panic you know because wow oh my god everything is changing because the temperature we're not you know when countries are at war probably keeping the temperature in a museum is like the least last thing on their 
agenda. For some of them, it's not. Some people actually go and protect the artworks even under fire. But it's a, you know, it's a tough choice when you have to choose between an object and the life of your loved ones, even your lovely cat, you know, it's, yeah, so it's yeah, all relevant. Yeah, it's it's relevant and it kind of, you know, we created in America, I mean, I'll say we, because I've actually lived longer in New York than I've lived in Poland, and I have an American citizenship, and in America we created this illusion that this perfection is attainable. We forgot about the cost of it, and we forgot about what it does to our brains, and we forgot about all other aspects of life that happen while things change, while things age, while things change colors, while ideas change. Why you, you said you're interested in names and naming, while language changes. You know, when yeah. language changes, when suddenly you have this explosion of people, you know, I am officially much more vocal here in Europe uh, as a bisexual and it's easier for me to uh, it was easier for me to just not even talk about it when I was in the States because it was everywhere everybody was doing in New York whatever they needed to do when I'm here in Poland you know when the community is under so much stress and under so much uh, fear it's much more important to vocalize like you're belonging to a certain community so my language being in Warsaw has changed the way I talk about myself. And I became, since I landed, I said, you know, artist and being an artist, whether I'm going to make art or not, it's my business. I'm going to keep it secret to myself. But right now I'm going to be a poet because there's something challenging about, it's scary. Uh, first of all, I've never, poet, like being a poet for me is so high up on the, um, kind of, you have to have, how do you call it? You know, the kind of, you have to earn it, right? You have to earn to be a poet. And I would never be able to call myself that. But then I realized I've been writing all my life and poets are my people. And I think I really, and it, it, the, the, being a poet embraces so much about what's creative, but it's also ephemeral and fragile and kind of, you know, unmarkable to some degree at least. And I thought, I want to be that. I want to be that for 10,000 reasons, but I also I feel I'm going to be the truest to myself being that poet. And you know what? The first thing when I opened my mouth on the airplane and somebody's, the woman that was sitting next to me who was a Lithuanian, she says, so what do you do? And I said, I'm a poet. You know what she said? Oh my God, she said. I wrote when I was 15 and uh, I could probably still find some of these things. My mom probably kept them and I never thought of revisiting that and she was probably like in her early 40s. Yeah. And that was so beautiful for me that instead of like, so what kind of art do you do, blah, 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 somebody immediately said, I, I, you know, they, they, they joined the tribe because writing as a teenager is like, I don't know, 80% of people probably do it. Uh, and 90% won't tell you <laughs> that they did it. But in a way, writing in your journal or writing, finding language for who you are, which then grows into, you know, kind of literary uh, strategy or some kind of way of believing that language can give you something to define the world around you and yourself that kind of gives you something. That declaration that she made, like, you know, I did that, 
suddenly open the whole world. I thought, when you're a poet, you're entering this kind of communal mental space. You no longer be belong to this sort of strange elite of these people with supposed talents who maybe or may not m make a lot of money or are famous. I'm so happy to shed that. And I'm so happy to shed that culture of uh, pressure, ambition, ego. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it to the... And I still love art. And I still will make art probably, you know what I mean? But I make that distinction. What have been... That yeah. lady that came to you and talked about Calder, I think it was you said Calder. Did you have a relationship? I don't mean an actual relationship. I just mean, did you have a relationship with this artist to begin with? You knew who she was talking about. Absolutely. Not only was I, you know, because I went through hardcore education in America uh, and art and history of art. After City College, I went to Yale Art School and that was, you know, we had access to everything and to everybody and every, it was amazing. Uh, but Calder, for me, I mean, I love his sculptures, I love his mobas, I love his things, but there's one piece that he made, it's a circus and it's a very playful um, space. It's a kind of installation that was shown at the Whitney Museum quite a few times. I think there was a retrospective of Calder and that was the whole circus was assembled. And it was showing the ingenuity of an artist trying to figure out how to communicate with a child and how to, you know, give a child an experience and bring the smarts of being grown up into the kind of time of exploration that every child has, you know. So he built this kind of miniature circle, circus with characters and machines and figures and things that would move. And it's a whole kind of mobile installation. And I, you know, it's just, a, it's, he's like your best, best grandfather, uncle, who has a shed and he'll take you there and he'll make stuff for you and will play for you all day long with wires, with junk and with just, you know, so that's what Calder meant to me at that time and still does in some way. Hey, Eurovision Song Context listeners. For technical reasons, we've had to split this episode into two. Carry on to the next episode to listen to my conversation with Elka. Mm -hmm.